nights when the moon is high. The shadows dance, evil will rise. The world between the living and the dead is deadly. So now is the time to let the horror you know again. Hey guys, welcome back to the Horror You Know podcast. I'm Darren. And nobody else, because this week's going to be a little bit different format. Um, I'm actually doing a request from somebody I personally know um, on this podcast, and it's about a true crime that affected that person. And so just in reverence to the special nature, I guess you would say, and severity of the crime, uh, I decided to do this one alone. I asked the other guys, uh, the other hosts to kind of sit out this one, um, because, you know, we usually are formats, you know, presenting something that isn't that close to home and we can kind of cut up a little bit and, and make fun of the situation in light of, uh, what's going on. And this one was a little too close to home, so I I didn't want that. So I'm just going to present it to you uh, straightforward and let you guys kind of hear the story and, and decide your own opinions. If you have comments or anything, you know, please email us or, or put something on our socials because this is uh, something that kind of changed my opinion on how we do things a little bit. Um, not that you know, what we do is bad. It's just, there are real people involved with some of these crimes or with all of these crimes actually. And, you know, when it hits close to home, it kind of makes it more real. So I just wanted to, to put that out there. If you're not interested in just hearing a true crime story and, and the stuff behind it, um, maybe just wait till the next episode, but we will be back, uh, with that next episode in a few weeks. So, uh, hopefully you enjoy this one. If this is not your cup of tea, um, you know, just wait to the next episode. Uh, also a warning to everyone out there. This is a graphic episode and there are some trigger warnings. I'm sure. Um, when I was researching this, I was kind of appalled by a lot of the stuff that, you know, this person, this crime, that was the way it was committed happened. So, you know, I just wanted to give a fair warning out there to everybody before we start. Uh, you probably won't hear the jokes. You probably won't hear the cussing and the banter. And, you know, I definitely don't cuss as much when I'm not around the guys. So it's going to be a little bit different. But, you know, uh, hopefully hopefully this will get some stuff out there that I think needed to be understood. So here we go. This is the story of the scorecard killer. Now, the scorecard killer's name was Randy Kraft, and he was born in Long Beach, California, in March of forty-five, March ni- March nineteenth, nineteen forty-five. Uh, he was the fourth child, and he was the only boy, so he had three older sisters. And he moved; they moved from Wyoming, so they were in the Plain States, uh, Upper Plain States. And four years before I think he was born, they moved to to California. Uh, he apparently was a quite clumsy child. He broke his collarbone at one year old 
and he also fell down stairs at two and knocked himself completely unconscious and they had to rush him to the hospital. So there's another one of those things where serial killers have traumatic brain injuries at an early age sometimes. That's another example, it sounds like. But uh, he didn't exhibit any of these traits that other serial killers I've known or we've talked about exhibit. Uh, he had three older sisters who liked to dote on their only brother, making sure basically he had a wonderful childhood. And they described him as being a very docile and pleasant child with no apparent problems. So, you know, he didn't have that typical upbringing where a mother figure was, you know, bad to him or torturous or anything. Uh, didn't have a dad that left, didn't have any kind of abuse. Uh, he did have this one brain injury when he was two, falling down the stairs. But other than that, you know, they said he grew up pretty normal. In 1948, the family moved to Westminster, which is a conservative area of Orange County in California. And Randy seemed to fit into this conservative high school lifestyle. Once he was in high school, he kind of he played saxophone in the band. He graduated eventually in 1963 and moved on to uh, Claremont College in Pomona, California, which is a bit conservative for California. And at Claremont, he joined the ROTC. So he was definitely doing a lot of things that, you know, normal middle class conservative America would do at the time. Okay. Um, he joined the ROTC and demonstrated in favor of the Vietnam War. So that's, let's put that in perspective. Um, most of the demonstrations you heard were against the Vietnam War. There were actually demonstrations in favor of the Vietnam War through conservatives. And they were just kind of pushing back on people saying that we shouldn't get into this war. They were absolutely saying, yeah, we should get into this war. Um, he also helped campaign for the very ultra-right-wing conservative presidential candidate Barry Goldwater in 1964. So it's very typical upbringing for this, this kid, and you know, especially for California. I don't know about the time, but California now is way more liberal than most people think. They uh, are at least the bottom part in Orange County. Um, there are conservatives sprinkled about, but, you know, at the time, you know, he was going against the grain, I'm sure, for the young people. But he was actually like doing what his family had brought him up to do, which is be conservative. Uh, the next year he began changing, though, and he started getting left leaning political views. He grew his hair out and he also had a mustache, which was very unusual for this clean cut boy. He found a part-time employment bartending at Garden Grove Gay Bar, kind of way, way <laughs> past the uh, conservative kind of view uh, right there. And this was a total shift from that upbringing. So by his junior year, there were rumors about his fondness for bondage. And, you know, people around campus and some of the people that were a little bit close to him started whispering about him liking bondage. Uh, Kraft's roommate recalls that he would disappear with regularity, maybe two or three times a week, reappearing at strange hours. And this is a quote. What he did wasn't something he wanted you to know about. Kraft also had an affinity for Valium, trying in vain to ward off stomach pains and migraine headaches, which he was later uh, diagnosed with some, some disorders. 
um, that caused him to have stomach pains and migraines. Um, and that would go throughout his life. I wonder if maybe the uh, head trauma had something to do with that. I'm not for sure. Maybe something in his frontal lobe. But, you know, there's no actual research right now on that. Uh, Kraft moved off campus in 1966 with a male friend to Huntington Beach, California. He spent much of his free time in gay bars at this point. So, you know, we kind of know where this is heading, right? He grew up with three sisters, very conservative, uh, kind of hid that fact. It looks like that he was actually gay. Um, he was arrested in 1966 for lewd conduct after propositioning an undercover policeman in Huntington Beach. Uh, he got off with a warning, though, because it was his first time as an offender's warning. But his partying and gambling habits added eight months onto his graduation date. So instead of him graduating on time because he liked to party and he especially liked playing cards and taking Valium and staying up late at night, uh, that kind of led to him not being able to graduate in time. Um, and that's a, that's a warning out there for you kiddos that are possibly going to college. Don't stay up late and party all night and you'll probably graduate on time and get a life. So there you go. Uh, Kraft had gotten involved in another political campaign at this time, um, working for Robert Kennedy in 1968. So he went from Barry Goldwater in 64 to just four years later, uh, Robert Kennedy. And his commitment earned Kraft a personal letter from RFK. So RFK noticed, or at least his, his people noticed, uh, Randy Kraft's, uh, Robert Kennedy, I'm sorry, uh, noticed Randy Kraft's commitment. So they had Robert Fitzgerald Kennedy uh, write him a letter of recommendation. I don't know if that's Fitzgerald or if that's... John's name. I'm not for sure. Anyway, he was devastated when an assassin, Sirhan Sirhan, shot and killed his candidate in June of that year. So this totally like rocked his world. And he was really disillusioned with people and how everything, you know, in the world was going with the Vietnam War. And just there was a lot of turmoil throughout the United States. So uh, his conservative upbringing and his hiding of him being a homosexual, and then he finally felt felt like he found a place uh, helping the Kennedy campaign, and then him getting assassinated just really, really affected this dude. So days later, Kraft joined the U.S. Air Force, scoring high on aptitude tests and passing background checks to win a secret security clearance. Uh, he was posted to Edwards Air Force Base, and he supervised the painting of test planes. So this seems a little odd to me because he went from a conservative point of view to a liberal point of view just within four years. He then changes it back up, going to the military and working for the government. So it's like you go from, in your mind, conservatism to liberalism back to straight up working for the man. So I don't understand that, but you know that's, that's the way his life went apparently. Uh, what doesn't seem odd is Kraft's next move. He came out as gay, and he came out in 1969 to his family. They were shocked, given the time period and his upbringing. Um, also, the Air Force found out, and you know what happened there. Uh, his superiors discharged him on quote-unquote medical grounds that July. So they kicked him out of the military for being gay. Uh, you can't tell people you're gay. 
Uh, this is well before the uh, don't say gay type laws, you know. But he was he was basically ostracized immediately. Air Force, you know, said it was a mental medical ground, so they kicked him out and got an honorable discharge in 1969. Um, now the military, he resumed his bartending career, which he had for a while in college. And he shed weight immediately on a diet of speed and beer. So uh, I don't think that's a good way to lose weight, but that's the way he tried to. Anyway, he plunged full time into the gay lifestyle and he told his friends cryptically, there's a part of me, this is a quote from a book, there's a part of me that you will all never know. So boy, was he right. He had a dark, dark side and... You know, his family and friends didn't see these radical changes in him coming, and they didn't see the dark side of him until it was too late. So, here we go. In March of 1970, Kraft's first known victim was Joseph Alwyn Fancher, a 13-year-old runaway who met Kraft on the boardwalk in Huntington Beach. Kraft gave him marijuana, pills, and wine, showing him photos of men having sex Fancher was semi-conscious when Kraft stripped and sodomized him, resisting just enough to make Kraft threaten his life. Fancher ran away after Kraft went to work. He made his way to a nearby bar where patrons called for an ambulance. After he was treated at the emergency room, the boy led police back to Kraft's place looking for his shoes. They found the boy's sneakers along with various illegal drugs and 76 photos of Kraft enjoying sex with various men. The police did not make an arrest due to the fact they illegally searched the apartment without a warrant. So, <laughs> number one, screw up part of the story. He did not get arrested for this, so there was no red flags on this guy because they couldn't put it down that they arrested him for basically drugging and kidnapping and molesting a young boy because they didn't get a search warrant. So cops were just as dumb then as they are at any time in history. Uh, I think some cops are great, some cops do great jobs, but some cops are absolutely horrible at their job, and these seem to be some of them. So there you go. Uh, in 1971, Randy Kraft drove a forklift for a bottling plant by day and cruised gay bars at night. He briefly enrolled in Long Beach State at the time, and a classmate, Jeff Graves, became Kraft's live-in lover. However, Randy continued to go to the bars to pick up men, particularly Marines. On October 5th, 1971, police found a man's nude decomposing body beside Ortega Highway in southern Orange County. The body was identified as Wayne Joseph Duquette, a 30-year-old gay bartender from Long Beach that was missing for two weeks. The coroner said that he'd probably died around September 20th, but found no obvious signs of foul play. Duquette's clothing and personal effects were never found. This was Randy's first murder victim. So we're starting October 5th, 1971. The next confirmed victim was found beside the 405 freeway in Seal Beach the day after Christmas 1972. Edward Daniel Moore, a 20-year-old Marine, was last seen alive in his Camp Pendleton barracks on Christmas Eve. He was found at 1.45 a.m., apparently dumped from a moving car. Moore had been strangled and bludgeoned. There were bite marks on his genitals, and one of his own socks was jammed in his rectum. This seems like an odd little thing to do, but it shows up over and over again. 
uh, socks in the rectum. On February 6, 1973, a nude, quote-unquote, John Doe was found beside the Terminal Island Freeway. He was probably strangled a day or two before he was found. He was about 18 years old. The victim has never been identified, and he also had a brown sock stuffed in his stuffed up into his rectum another john doe was discovered on easter sunday the corpse was discarded in huntington beach this one missing his shoes and socks but underneath the bloody socks or slacks his genitals were actually missing ligature marks scarred his wrists cause of death was either blood loss or asphyxiation so this is the first time we start seeing you know not just angry sexual things we saw extremely angry sexual things like cutting off genitals and stuff uh before that it was like bite marks and and other things but it's like you can see it's quickly ramping up the year's next victim was another john doe and was dismembered this time scattered across two counties the head was in long beach the torso right leg and both arms was in san pedro and the left leg was in sunset beach Bondage marks were evident and their remains had been refrigerated prior to dumping. The victim's hands were never found. So at this point, he is actually dismembering bodies. He froze them in a, in a freezer and then dumped the body parts in different parts of California. So very different. Uh, Ron Wiebe a or weeb i'm not for sure on that one a 20 year old from fullerton disappeared bar hopping on july 28 1973 his corpse was found two days later beside the 405 in seal beach he was fully clothed but barefoot and he had been beaten and strangled weeb had been bound and apparently hung upside down before he was killed for torture that included bites on his stomach and penis and one of his own missing socks was found in his rectum. So this is definitely becoming a calling card, the bites and stuffing something in his rectum. Um, also, the hanging upside down was a little bit different than the other ones. So it's like this guy's experimenting on them. So just seeing what he can do and get away with. Uh, 23-year-old art student Vincent Cruz Mestis was pulled from a ravine in the San Bernardino Mountains on December 29, 1973. Like Ron Weeb, he was clothed but barefoot, one of his own socks jammed into his anus. Cruz's face and head were freshly shaved and his hands were missing. Plastic sandwich bags covered the bloody stumps. A pencil-sized object, never identified, had been forced into his penis prior to death. So this guy is just mutilating these people and weirdly he shaves him um so i don't understand the pattern for sure but there is starting to be a pattern uh with the socks and now a pencil sized object they found 20 year old malcolm eugene little on june 1st 1974 leaving his nude body propped against a mes mesquite tree beside Highway 86 west of Salton Sea in Imperial County. Little was an un unemployed truck driver and had arrived from Alabama to look for work just a week before he died. His slayer left the body in its legs, with its legs spread to emphasize the severed genitals. 
A mesquite branch was rammed six inches into his rectum. So he didn't use the sock this time. He actually used a branch. Roger Dickerson, a, an 18-year-old U.S. Marine, was last seen alive in late June at a bar in San Clemente. He told friends he found a ride to Los Angeles for the weekend. He didn't give them the name of the driver who apparently sodomized and strangled him, leaving bite marks on Dickerson's penis and left nipple before he dumped the nude corpse near Laguna Beach Golf Course. Oil field workers in Long Beach found 25-year-old Thomas Paxton Lee, a local waiter and sometimes gay hustler, as he was described, on August 3rd, 1974. He was last seen alive at a Wilmington bar the previous night. Nine days later, 23-year-old Gary Wayne Cordova was found fully clothed but barefoot beside a highway in Southern California. Uh, death was caused by an overdose of alcohol and Valium. Lacking any other killer mutilation, trademark mutilations, neither victim was initially connected to the murder series. So, the oil-filled worker, or no, the local waiter, Thomas Paxton Lee, and Gary Wayne Cordova were not connected at first to these murders. James Dale Reeves was found by Irvine police on November 29, 1974, Nude except for a bloody t-shirt, the gay 19-year-old had gone out cruising on Thanksgiving Day and never returned. His killer left the body with legs spread, a tree limb four feet long and three inches in diameter protruding from his anus. Uh, I don't know how disgusting it, the rest of this gets because it's been a while since I've done some of this research, but that is one of the most horrific things images or things that I've said on this show and I just I don't understand how somebody could treat somebody and you know whether they were alive or dead I don't, I don't see how you could treat a human like that December 1974 murder of John Laris a 17 year old high school student Laris had vanished on his way to Long Beach skating rink he was found in the surf off of Sunset Beach he had a wooden surveyor's stay hammered into his rectum. Laris had been strangled while bound and had alcohol in his system. Interestingly, there were two sets of footprints marking the sand where he's carried from a car park to the water. Now, this comes in later when people try to say that he definitely did not do these killings alone, or at least some of the killings alone, because there's a few things that kind of pop up showing that there could have been a second helper. Um, Possibly his lover, uh, or he possibly got somebody else to help him do it, or it was just bad policing. We don't know. Um, shortly after noon, on January 17, 1975, construction workers found 21-year-old Craig Victor Juanitez strangled to death near a Long Beach motel on Pacific Coast Highway. Juanitez was barefoot but otherwise fully dressed. In fact, he wore two pair of pants, one over the other. So that's a that's kind of a weird thing. Um, he didn't have the other, you know, some of the other calling cards that this killer was doing. So this is when they're they're starting to think it could be multiple people, and they're not really connecting the dots on everything. Detectives from several jurisdictions met in Santa Ana on January 24, 1975 to organize a task force. Sheriff's officers from Orange, Imperial, 
San Bernardino attended the meeting, as did police representatives from L.A., Long Beach, Seal Beach, Irvine, and Huntington Beach. An FBI pro, uh, profiler from Quantico was uh, called in along with a special investigator from the California State Attorney's General Office. Um, there was also several forensic psychologists there. Various murders were compared, but none offered any significant leads. Dr. E. Mansell Patterson from UC Irvine profiled the Slayer as a man who desires to be masculine. This is a quote. He desires to be masculine, but does not feel masculine. He gnaws at the nipples and genitals of his prey to symbolically make the victim a female. So, none of that's been proven, but it does sound very interesting. Uh, next, Keith Davin Crotwell, a 19-year-old high school dropout, left Long Beach on March 29, 1975, thumbing southbound rides, and vanished. On May 8th, three boys hunting starfish found a severed head near Long Beach Marina. Friends scoured Long Beach for the black and white Mustang that took Crotwell on his last ride, locating it a few days later. Police traced the registration and questioned the owner, Randy Kraft, on May 19th. Now, this is about as close as they're going to get to this killer. And it's crazy because a 19-year-old was seen in this car. They traced the car back to Randy Kraft Kraft admitted to taking Crotwell for a ride, said, quote, we were just wandering around, but claimed he left the youth, youth alive and well at an all-night cafe. Detectives wanted to charge Kraft with the murder, but L.A. County prosecutors refused, citing the absence of a body or a known cause of death. Yet again, a serial killer is a near miss by bad policing. So... They didn't even look into it any further. They they had him on their radar, but for some reason they didn't stay with him on their radar. Kraft was then employed part-time as a computer operator for a charter flight company at Long Beach Airport. In 1975, he was arrested for misdemeanor lewd conduct in, Cher conduct in Cherry Park, so he was then fired from that job. His computer skills, however, landed him another job with a consulting firm. Now, he's been, you know, it's... <laughs> He's been tied to lewd conduct in other parks. He was tied to lewd conduct in this park. He was with that young boy that they couldn't do anything about because they didn't get a search warrant. Apparently, they didn't keep it on file. Maybe they weren't allowed to keep it on file. But then he was also involved with this 19-year-old dropout boy's head that they found because he was the last known person to see that kid alive. And he admitted so. And I just, I don't understand how cops could be so, if they're having this task force, how they're not on this guy right away. But, I mean, we're talking, this is 1975. So, let's keep going. Larry Jean Walters, 21, was killed in Los Angeles County on Halloween 1975, strangulation. Two months later, on New Year's Eve, 22-year-old Mark Hall disappeared from a party in San Juan Capistrano, off-duty policemen found his nude corpse on January 3, 1976, in the Cleveland National Forest near the Riverside County line. This is one of the more brutal killings, so I'm just wanting to warn you. He was nude and bound to a tree. He'd been sodomized and tortured to death. His legs were slashed with a knife. His eyes, face, chest, and genitals were burned with a cigarette lighter over and over. A cocktail swizzle stick 
uh, was jammed through his penis with such force that it, it entered his bladder. His genitals were severed and stuffed into his rectum, along with dirt and leaves. Hall's blood alcohol level was six to seven times its legal limit, and it was probably a fatal dose, but the killer had made sure by packing more leaves and dirt into his throat to make sure he, he asphyxiated. So, I couldn't imagine coming upon this body. Uh, these policemen had to have been traumatized, I'm sure, by seeing this, because this is not something you normally see. And this is something that's out of one of the worst horror movies you could find. I mean, it's just... That's grotesque. It's, it's kind of not only grotesque, it's shocking, and I don't know what to say about it other than, wow, it's just crazy. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, Randy Kraft's relationship with Jeff Graves began to fall apart. Duh. I mean, surely this guy's starting to see weird stuff going on. Um, but it was after his arrests in 1975. They they split by the end of that year, and Kraft then moved in with a 19-year-old named Jeff Selig, uh, sharing a Laguna Hills apartment. Other younger boy murders began appearing in trash bags along California highways and in dumpsters. Police were now looking at those as either a new method from this same killer or an entirely new killer. Nine slayings were confirmed in 1976, perhaps with untold others consigned to dumps and trash compactors and incinerators. The first of that year was 13-year-old Oliver Peter Molitor, whose body was found in Manhattan Beach in 1976, two weeks and a half later. On April 7th, 17-year-old Kenneth Eugene Buchanan was dumped in Englewood, followed by uh, Redondo Beach discovery of 13-year-old Michael Craig McGee, on June 11th, October's victim was 16-year-old Randall Lawrence Moore, who was left in a trash bag along Highway 80 east of El Cajon, and Paul Fuchs, 19, vanished from Redondo Beach on December 10th and was never seen again. Other victims were dumped at Borrego Hot Springs near Calexico on the Mexican border. Authorities remained baffled, unable to match their handful of meager clues to any known suspect, including Kraft. Now, it is fair to say I'll bring them up later, but uh, there there uh, are a couple of people that were killing it at the time um, in and around the highways of Southern California, and they later were caught before Kraft. One was in 1977, a surrender of Patrick Kearney, and his subsequent confessions to the trash bag murders of 28 young men, Kearney's victims were typically shot in the head. He balked at claiming victims who were tortured, so he was not the one that put the socks or anything in people and burnt them with cigarettes and stuff. So he said he basically either shot them or strangled them, put them in trash bags. Uh, after a moratorium of sorts, the brutal highway murders resumed following Kearney's arrival in San Quentin in early 1978. So definitely he was not the only one killing and he was not the one responsible for killing these other boys when they questioned him. Um, and definitely there is a difference in type. So the, most of these young boys were like 17, 18 year olds or younger. Uh, the 28 men that he killed were, were young men or boys. 
and he didn't torture them. So it was way different. So on April 16, 1978, Scott Michael Hughes, a 19-year-old Marine from Camp Pendleton, was found beside uh, 91 Freeway in Orange County. Hughes was fully dressed with laces missing from his shoes beneath his blood-stained slacks. His genitals were mutilated. The left testicle had been removed. Known to fellow Marines as a boisterous doper, Hughes had volume in his blood, but death resulted from ligature strangulation. So he was choked to death. Uh, June 10th, 1978, 23-year-old Roland Young was released from Orange County Jail after one of his numerous arrests for public intoxication. He left the lockup at 8.19 p.m. and was next seen at 3.30 a.m. June 11th, sprawled dead in an Irvine gutter. Sometime afterward, his release from jail, Young consumed alcohol and volume. His wrists were bound when a sadist severed his scrotum and part of his penis, then stabbed him four times in the chest and redressed redressed his corpse. Uh, and maybe that had something to do with time, or he just decided to do that and didn't want to look at his new body, but it's interesting that he redresses his corpse. Uh, 23-year-old Marine Richard Keith uh, was found. He had been hitchhiking from Camp Pendleton to Los Angeles to visit his girlfriend, but they quarreled over th- him thumbing rides, and he left 11 p.m. on June 19th, hitching back to the base. An off-duty fireman found his corpse the next morning in southern Orange County. Again, police suspected two killers because they thought one had to drive and one had to push his body from the moving car. Washington native Keith Klingbeil was still alive when a motorist found him on July 6, 1978. brought across a northbound lane of I-5 in Mission Viejo. Uh, Paramedics arrived on the scene at 3.30 a.m., but they were unable to save him due to a massive overdose of liquor and Tylenol. Ligature marks were found on Klingbeil's ankles. Burns from a cigarette lighter surrounded one of his nipples. So that's why they think it could have been the same killer. Uh, Michael Joseph Enderbyten, a 21-year-old Long Beach truck driver found on November 18, 1978. His genitals were cut off and he was sodomized with a large foreign object. His eyelids were seared with an automobile cigarette lighter. Enter Biden was dumped 20 feet from the spot where Edward Moore was found in December of 72. Multiple witnesses observed the very next body drop. Donald Harold Krizzle was pushed from a slow-moving vehicle along the 405 in Irvine on June 16, 1979. Witnesses couldn't agree on the vehicle type, though. Some said it was a car. Some said it was a van. That's pretty dramatically different, but uh, who knows if they actually all of them saw it. So the young man, uh, young Marine's corpse, marked by tire tracks, was still warm when police arrived. With ligature marks on the neck and wrists, death did not come from strangulation, but an overdose of alcohol and certain painkillers. So, more than a dozen male corpses were found along Southern California freeways in 1979, victims ranging from 13 to 24. Uh, They can only identify some of them, Um, but the ones that they did identify were 13-year-old Thomas Lundgren, uh, 17-year-old Marcus Grabs, uh, 15-year-old Donald Hayden and 17-year-old Donald or David Murillo. Most of the same stuff happening to them, but 
the difference being the age. There was also another serial killer uh, working at the same time who later gave himself up. Um, I will tell you his name here in a second because I can't quite remember it, but we're going to move on. So anyway, um, Randy Kraft was doing well at the time uh, with his freelance data processing consultant job. He could afford a house now in Long Beach with Jeff Seelig, his 19-year-old live-in lover. And they also traveled widely at this time. So he went to Mexico in August of 78. He went to Lake Tahoe in May of 79. He did an extended East Coast tour from New York to the, to the Keys um, during that time. Friends recall that both men kept bizarre hours. And Seelig ran a bakery while Kraft stayed out of uh, stayed out half the night, you know, doing his cruising and drinking. And supposedly Seelig didn't know what was going on. Some people suggest that he might have been helping him at this time. But by August of 1980, Kraft was consulting for for uh, Lear Siegler Industries, or LSI, with regional offices in Michigan, Oregon, and San Diego. Between his normal salary and week, weekend freelance work, he earned about $50,000 per year in 1980 and 81. So that's quite a bit of money. So he was actually making some good money doing his consulting. He was a very smart guy. Uh, his employers described him as a self-starter and an excellent problem solver and, and no shit. Cause I mean, he's getting away with a lot of these murders for a long, long time. But it says here, uh, quote, an exceptional employee who deserves exceptional treatment unquote uh the hard work came at a price though because Kraft off often you know resorted to junk food and and just bad eating habits and alcohol and stuff and that aggravated his hypoglycemia and caused caused uh chest pains and you know stomach troubles and headaches and everything else so in june of 1982 he sought counseling with c-league their therapist describing Jeff as defensive and anxious with an insatiable sex drive, while Randy resented Seelig's efforts to dominate the relationship. They planned a European vacation to patch up their problems, but neither ever seemed to have the time. Therapy sessions were frequently interrupted by Kraft's travels for LSI, going to Oregon, San Francisco, San Francisco Bay Area, and Michigan. And whenever Kraft traveled... The murders followed. So in, in Colorado, uh, or wait, 17-year-old Colorado native Michael Sean O'Fallon hitchhiked to British Columbia in June of 1980 and made it back to Oregon before his luck ran out running into Randy Kraft. His naked corpse was found along I-5 10 miles from Salem on June 17, 1980. O'Fallon was hogtied with shoelaces, a cord knotted around his scrotum, he had near-fatal levels of alcohol and Valium in his blood, but the cause of death was actually strangulation. On September 3, 1980, children playing near El Toro Marine Air Force Base found the corpse of Robert Wyatt Loggins Jr. inside of a plastic garbage bag. A 19-year-old Marine who was last seen alive on August 22nd, Loggins had been dead for two to three days when he was found. Recently confined to the barracks for drinking, he had disappeared on the first night of freedom found with deadly levels of alcohol and antihistamines in his blood. Despite the plastic shroud, police considered his death, and get this, 
accidental until 1983. The police considered his death accidental. So he drank himself to death and took too many antihistamines, but apparently put himself in a plastic bag. Okay, anyway. When evidence seized from Randy Kraft's home changed their minds, you know, that, that's kind of how they found out. So it's, it's weird that for a long time, three years to be exact, uh, they thought this guy's death was accidental. Michael Dwayne Cluck, 17, was hitchhiking from Seattle to California in April of 81 when he made it into Oregon before he accepted a ride with the killer. He was found dumped along I-5 near Goshen. Cluck had been violently sodomized, then kicked and beaten to death, his thighs and groin marked by fingernail scratches. On the day his body was found, Randy Kraft visited a nearby hospital for treatment of an injured foot Bruised accidentally, he said, while walking barefoot in his hotel room. So, this is a really violent one. Like, it's not gruesome, but he did beat this guy to death, which is not typical of what he did to the other guys. Um, and then having this foot that he had to go to the hospital to get treatment for, uh, coincidentally, in the same town, is, is very weird. Uh, people complained to police on July 29, 1981, of foul odor coming from the nearby Hollywood Freeway in L.A. Officers investigated and retrieved two, two corpses from a gully there. 13-year-old Raymond Davis had disappeared several weeks earlier while searching for a lost dog, and 16-year-old Robert Avila had been reported missing from Hollywood, sought in vain by psychics his parents employed. Three weeks later, on August 20th, 1981, 17-year-old Christopher Williams was found dead beside a road in the San Bernardino Mountains. Known as the Hollywood Hustler, Williams had been doped with two different sedatives before someone stuffed his nostrils with paper, causing him to suffocate. A third Oregon victim in 1982, 26-year-old Brian Witcher, turned up along I-5 near Portland, on November 26th, drugged with alcohol and Valium, killed by asphyxiation. December 7th, Kraft was in Grand Rapids, Michigan for an LSI computer conference. Cousins Dennis Alt and Chris Schoenborn vanished that night from a bar in Kraft's hotel. Their corpses found together in Plainfield Township two days later. Both were doped with alcohol and Valium, then strangled. Schoenborn was nude, a ballpoint pen from Kraft's hotel, was thrust into his bladder through the penis. Alt was fully clothed except for shoes. His shirt pushed up and slacks unzipped to bare his genitals. That is horrifying. These two young guys were there for some kind of like FFA type conference and he was there for his computer conference and they just ran into the wrong dude it looks like. By the time Alt and Schoenborn were found, Kraft was back in Oregon and another teenager was dead. On December 9th, while Kraft was checking out of his Wilsonville hotel, a motorist found 19-year-old Lance Trenton Tags beside a nearby road. Not far from the site was Brian Witch where Brian Witcher was dumped in November. A former resident of Hawaii, Tags had come to live with his grandparents in September of 82. He was drugged with alcohol and Valium, choked to death on a sock his killer forced down his throat, Nine days later, a man collecting cans outside Hubbard, Oregon, found the body of 29-year-old Anthony Jose Silveira, last seen alive on December 3rd. 
Hitchhiking home from his job, Silviera had consumed liquor and Valium before he was strangled and sodomized with a large foreign object, left with a red plastic toothbrush protruding from his anus. I just don't understand this guy's fascination with this weird stuff, but... Uh, Oregon police recognized a pattern in the murders and secured information from a Southern California, from Southern California, where other victims have been drugged and strangled over the past decade. A computer search of airline records, hotel leisure, leisures, and rental car companies were initiated, seeking seeking frequent visitors from California. Randy Kraft's name would appear 18 times on this list but not before he was arrested in Orange County, driving drunk with a corpse in his passenger seat. Um, In 1983, Eric Church, 21, was found sodomized, bludgeoned, and strangled along the 605 freeway on January 28th. Semen from his body later matched the Crafts to Crafts blood type. Uh, Michael, or Michael, Lane, it's kind of spelled weird, Uh, I'll say Michael, Lane, 24, vanished while hitchhiking through Orange County. Kraft was already in jail before Lane's skeletal remains surfaced near Ramona in 1984. And 18-year-old Jeffrey Nelson and 20-year-old Robert Duvall Jr. disappeared together while bar hopping. On February 11th, they were found near Claremont College, drugged, sodomized, and strangled two days later. Three months and one day later, authorities finally got their break by accident with Kraft's Orange County arrest for the killing of Terry Gambrell. I had to look up the other serial killer that was working at the time. And the first one I mentioned already is Patrick Kearney. Uh, He was also nicknamed the trash bag killer. He killed between 21 and 43 people. Uh, His target age was between 8 and 28. And he usually shot them to death. And he said he didn't mutilate their bodies, but there is some evidence that he probably did. And there was some necrophilia possibly involved. Sometimes he drained the blood post-mortem. And he was a homosexual pickup artist, they said. Uh, But anyway, he pleaded guilty to to avoid the death penalty. Uh, But... Uh, there was two people involved with that. Another guy named David Hill and David Hill actually was exonerated because there was not enough evidence and he was the state's witness against Kearney. Um, and then there was another killer, uh, named William Bonin, Bonin, something like that. Uh, William Bonin. And he killed between 21 to 36 plus victims. They don't know for sure. He targeted boys in their early to late teens. He raped and tortured them. And he killed killed his victims to silence them. Uh, basically because he was, he was molesting these boys. Um, he actually was found guilty. And he was executed by lethal injection. So... He was actually like not in prison for long. Um, so those are the two that were working at the same time. Uh, the trash bag killer and the, and the highway killer, freeway killer. And they initially called uh, Randy Kraft the freeway killer. But later it changed to the scorecard killer, which I'm going to tell you about here in a second. So I just wanted to go back and talk about those two killers. And just to remind people that serial killers work. 
throughout the world all the time. Um, it's not like a generational thing where it just happened a long time ago. It's currently happening, I'm sure. Um, but it seems like we know a lot about the killers from the 60s and 70s uh, just because it was probably easier to get away with it, quite honestly, back then uh, without you know the, the forensics and the DNA and, and uh, whatnot. You had to go back to the old-time policing uh, so it's just a little bit different. So this brings us to our last victim here. Um, so I'm going to read this. Shortly after 1 a.m. on May 14th, 1983, two CHP officers stopped a drunk driver, what they thought to be a drunk driver, on San Diego Freeway in Mission Viejo, California. Instead of waiting in his car, this person stepped out and poured out his beer bottle onto the pavement as he emerged. Not too smart right away. Uh, and also his pants fly was gaped open as he approached the patrol car. At a glance at his driver's license, they identified the man as 38-year-old Randy Stephen Kraft of Long Beach. Kraft admitted to drinking but swore he was sober. A field sobriety test proved otherwise, and he was arrested for driving while intoxicated. So for this... Stop. Initially, it seemed like a routine DUI arrest there in Orange County, but Sergeant Michael Howard approached his car and saw a man slumped in the passenger seat, partially covered by a jacket. So this is the reason Kraft got out. He was trying to, you know, not have them catch him with the guy. Uh, it's kind of a dumb way he did it, getting out and pouring a bottle of beer out. Um, but it was a different time, so maybe cops would have let him go back then. I don't know. Uh, but anyway... Um, there was empty beer bottles scattered around his feet and a folding knife lay in plain sight on the driver's seat. Howard knocked on the window but got no response. Opening the door, he tried in vain to rouse the passenger. The man was barefoot with his pants unzipped and genitals exposed. He had no pulse and his neck was ringed uh, with red marks as he had been strangled previously. Paramedics pronounced the man dead at 1.21 a.m. Orange County Sheriff's deputies obtained a search warrant for Kraft's car, scouring the vehicle for evidence. In addition to the beer, they found nine prescription drugs, including Valium and various other painkillers. Beneath the lifeless passenger, the seat cushion was stained with blood, although the dead man had no open wounds. Underneath a floor mat was the most disturbing thing of all, 47 Polaroids of nude young men who appeared to be unconscious or dead. A briefcase in the trunk contained a sheet of yellow paper from a legal pad with 61 cryptic comments neatly printed in two columns. They began with stable, the word stable, and ended with what you got. Soon detectives would describe the notes as coded murder victims. Uh, Kraft's passenger, and this is where it gets a little personal, Kraft's passenger was soon identified as Terry Lee Gambrel, a 25-year-old Marine stationed at nearby El Toro Marine Air Force Base. His blood alcohol level contained, uh, or his blood contained high levels of alcohol and prescription tranquilizer Ativan, one of the medications found in Kraft's car. Together, the beers and pill might have killed him, but an autopsy confirmed uh, death by ligature strangulation. Searchers moved at the home Kraft shared with gay lover Jeffrey Selig, uncovering a 
Treasure trove of evidence. I don't know why it keeps on saying gay lover. Just it could say his lover. It's kind of weird that it says it that way. Uh, a couch in the living room was the same one used to pose several nude models uh, in Crafts Polaroid Connect collection. A, an old yellow rug in the house appeared to match fibers retrieved from the corpse. Found in Anaheim in April of 78. In Crafts Garage, police found an odd cache of mismatched belts, chains, and shoelaces and clothing. One of the jackets belonged to a Michigan murder victim slain in December of 82. In days to come, detectives would identify three more California murder victims depicted in Kraft's Polaroids. His fingerprint would match those found on shards of broken glass in December 1975 murder scene. Kraft was initially charged with just one murder of Terry Gambrill and held in in a $250,000 bond. He pled not guilty to the charge on May 16th, 1983, but Judge Gary Ryan thought him dangerous enough that he actually tripled his bill to $750,000, effectively confining Kraft until his trial. At a bail reduction hearing one week later, Kraft's attorney called him passive and nonviolent and hardworking, citing some of the co-workers he worked with. Prosecutor Brian Brown responded by charging Kraft with four more murders from early 1983. Victims including 18-year-old Jeffrey Nelson, Robert Loggins, Roger Duvall, and Eric Church. Judge Robert Thomas accepted Kraft's not guilty plea on those counts and revoked in bail entirely. A week later, Kraft was charged in a 1975 torture slaying of 22-year-old Mark Hall. So... You know, you had the freeway killer, you had the trash bag killer, now you've got what's known as the scorecard killer. And the reason that they call him the scorecard killer is because that yellow piece of paper they found in uh, the person's trunk. So going to his scorecard or death list, uh, his alleged death list consisted of two neatly printed columns, 30 cryptic items on the left side and 31 on the right. It began with stable and ended with what you got, but... Authorities were convinced that the list was a scorecard of his victims, but the document still gave them headaches for, you know, four entries, two and one hitch, two and one beach, GR2, and two and one MKV to PL, apparently referred to double murders, raising the body count to possibly 65. But only one of those notations could be translated. Two and one hitch allegedly refers to the murders of Jeffrey Nelson and Robert Roger Duvall, police finally matched known victims to 45 notes from the list while maintaining that no entries existed for Eric Church or Terry Gambrell. The final tally, 67 dead, with 22 of those unrecovered and identified. Some of the scorecard entries seemed virtually transparent, such as EDM matched Edward Daniel Moore's initials, while Gel Out referred to Roland Young killed within hours of a of his release from an Orange County drunk tank jail. Portland, Hawaii seemed to fit Lance Tags, lately returned from the Aloha State to Hawaii or to uh, Oregon, and Portland, Denver was Colorado native Michael Fallon, likewise killed in Oregon, while Portland Blood described the battered corpse of Michael Cluck. Seventh Street marked the freeway on ramp where Ron Weeb was dumped in 1973 as Euclid named the ramp where Kraft deposited Scott Hughes. Maureen Carson referred to the L.A. suburb 
where Richard Keith's girlfriend resided. Parking lot described Kraft's fatal rendezvous with Keith Crotwell. New Year's Eve recalled the disappearance of Mark Hall. MCHB tattoo became Robert Loggins. Uh, Westminster date marked the disappearance of 15-year-old Jeffrey Brian Sayre, uh, who vanished forever after visiting his Westminster girlfriend on November 24th of 79. Airplane Hill fingered John, uh, John Doe near Huntington Beach, and Don Cressel discarded in Irvine without his pants became Marine drunk overnight shorts. Other notations such as stable, Angel, Harry Carey, England, Oil, Twiggy, Portland, Portland Head, Portland Reserve, and Portland Eck, and so on remained unexplained. But some of those, I mean, Portland Head could have been that one guy. Uh, Twiggy could have been that guy they said that had the stick in him. Uh, so there's, a, there's possible things that could go with these, but... Kraft was no help to the police. He insisted that none of this referred to actual uh, killings, but they were liaisons with gay lovers still alive and well, or to mundane incidents from his daily life. His original saying for that was, he said that this list was a coded list for a birthday party for his his uh, live-in lover, Jeff Selig. Uh, and these were people that he didn't want him to know if he found the note who they were it just seems a little sketchy i mean and kind of quite silly to say this is a coded list of birthday party attendees but anyway uh police thought otherwise they had a corpse in randy's car and another victim whose jacket was stashed in his garage snapshots of several other victims in his car rug fibers lifted from corpses uh, Kraft's fingerprints recovered from crime scenes and a list that linked the murderers marking Kraft as a prolific trophy hunter. Uh, it's, <laughs> and still to this day, what's funny is after all that, they still have him in prison and he's still like, oops, I kind of spoiled it, I guess. Uh, yes, he does go to prison for this. And yes, he still says he's innocent. Um, so in September 8th of 1983, Orange County Sheriff Brad Gates held a press conference announcing that uh, his men had been able to establish Randy Kraft's propensity without a doubt for sexually deviant behavior that goes back to the 1970 period. And Prosecutor Brian Brown declared he was ready for trial on 16 murder counts, the final tally including the victims Don Crystal, Keith Crotwell, Scott Hughes, Michael Ender Biden, Richard Keith, Edith Moore, uh, Ron Wiebe, Roland Young, John Doe's from 73, uh, you know, and then Terry Gambrell. There, there were 16 of them in total. I'm not going to go through all of them. We've already talked about some of them. Uh, Kraft's preliminary hearing began after five postponements on September 22nd, 1983, and lasted several weeks. Now, I'm going to talk about those postponements later because they kind of pissed me off, but. Judge John Ryan barred cameras from his court, but rejected a defense bid to exclude spectators. Highway patrol officers described Kraft's arrest with a corpse in his car, and homicide detectives outlined the evidence linking Kraft to the various murders. Forensic pathologist Walter Fisher and R Robert Richards detailed the injuries suffered by specific victims, 
In closing arguments, Brian Brown dubbed Kraft a true scorecard killer, while attorney Delgado claimed Brown had proved nothing. Judge Ryan found the evidence sufficient to hold Kraft for trial. Delgado would not be there when it started, though. In August of 84, he withdrew from the case, put off by Kraft's insistence on serving as co-counsel. So Otto was swiftly replaced, and the legal maneuvers dragged on, costing California taxpayers $2 million by 1986. Eight more murder charges were filed against Kraft, six in Oregon and two in Michigan, but none would ever go to trial. More than five years after his arrest, on September 26, 1988, Kraft's trial convened before Judge Donald McCartan. Defense motions to quash all the evidence from the 1983 searches were denied, but McMartin, McCartan sorry, barred any reference to victims beyond the 16 named in the Orange County charges. So this is the reason that none of the uh, past the 16 were actually able to be tried because uh, he barred them. So they would have had a, their own separate trial. And apparently people like to save money from different states. So instead of trying somebody and giving uh, some kind of closure to parents for showing that they get, that this man got convicted, they decided to save money, which I understand saving money, but it's kind of bullshit at the same time. Those people never get closure fully because the guy was never convicted of their child's killing. Um, anyway, attorney C. Thomas McDonald's opening statement dismissed the state's case as suspicion, innuendo, and prosecutorial rhetoric while calling Kraft a homeowner, taxpayer, and hard worker, just like many other citizens around the country. The bottom line was Kraft killed no one, and this is a witch hunt. So he was trying to say that he was a good person and people were only going after him because of some very sketchy in their mind evidence and the fact that he was a homosexual prosecutors called more than 157 witnesses and presented 1052 exhibits of evidence to contest that assertion resting the state's case on november 30th 1988 Kraft's defenders relied on a dual strategy of alibis and alternate suspects with imprisoned serial killers willem bonin bonin whatever his name is and patrick kearney chief among the latter. Closing arguments ended on May 1st, 1989, and jur jurors deliberated for 11 days to reach their final verdict. They acquitted Kraft of sodomizing Roger Duvall, but convicted him on all 16 murder charges, plus one count each of sodomy and mutilation uh, for castrating Jeff Nelson. The separate penalty phase of Kraft's trial began on June 5th. Defense attorneys presented a stack of family photo albums and a bid to humanize their client. Nearly a dozen jailers testified that Kraft had been a model prisoner during his six years behind bars, while former co-workers called him friendly, outgoing, and normal, one suggesting that society would lose a very brilliant mind if Kraft was executed. Unable to claim innocence after the guilty verdict, uh, Kraft's lawyers called a psychiatrist to testify that Randy's violence was something that he had no control of. Several ministers opposed to capital punishment also appeared until Judge McCartan branded their testimony as silly and so far afield it's stupid. <laughs> Which makes me laugh because these ministers come in and are trying to you know, use a religious kind of thing for opposing capital punishment. He, he says that's silly. And which it is. I mean, once again, we have separation of church and state. You can't bring that shit into a courtroom. 
The state called Joe Fancher, jailed in Orange County after his Colorado parole for auto theft to describe Kraft's assault in March 1970. Now, remember, he was the first victim. When Fancher was 13, uh, he was the runaway that supposedly uh, Randy Kraft drugged and molested. Uh, Prosecutor Brown reviewed the scorecard list, telling jurors there's nothing wrong with him other than he likes killing for sexual satisfaction. Uh, that's pretty uh, that's pretty blunt and to the point. There's nothing wrong with him other than he likes to kill for sexual satisfaction. Uh, jurors agreed and recommended the death penalty on August 11th, 1989. Judge McCartan made it official on November 29th when he sentenced Kraft to die. McCartan noted receipt of several letters from parents of missing children seeking information to whether Kraft had killed their sons. Somewhere down the line, with response to your legal grounds for appeals, maybe you might get, give some thought in your waning moments to help these people out. Uh, so he's been, since 1989, uh, he's been on death row. Um, his trial had been the longest, 13 months, and most expensive, $10 million, in Orange County history. But the appeals process would drag on even longer, 13 years and counting so far. His initial court appeal claiming that California's gas chamber violated First Amendment religious tenets by forcing a condemned inmate to actively participate in his own killing was quickly rejected. But Kraft had other legal tricks up his sleeve. In 1992, he sued Dennis McDougal and Warner Brothers for publishing a book, Angel of Darkness, a study of his case. Uh, which he said it hurt his good name and unjustly portrayed him as a sick, twisted man and thereby uh, hurting his prospects for future employment. So he still thought he was going to get out. Uh, Kraft sought $62 million in damages, and while the lawsuit was dismissed as frivolous, it cost McDougal and Warner $50,000 in legal fees. McDougal retaliated in September '94 with permission from a state appellate judge by seeking to recover costs from Kraft, perhaps confiscating the computer Kraft had used to file the lawsuit. I'm not pursuing this because I think Randy will have a cache of golden doubloons, gold doubloons under his mattress. What concerns me about all of this is that a felon and one that had been convicted of worse crimes imaginable can sue anybody they want without impunity on a regular basis. They clog the courts with phony baloney lawsuits and the states allow them to do it without charging them a dime to file. Authorities were more concerned about the missing names from Kraft's scorecard with the prospect of unidentified accomplices. Kraft's Huntington Beach John Doe victim was finally identified in March of 95 as 18-year-old drifter Kevin Clark Bailey, but 22 more death lists remain anonymous and undiscovered. So there was also 22... Okay. While forensic evidence in two cases, the Laris footprints and unidentified semen recovered from Eric Church's corpse, suggests that at least one other killer could be at large. Uh, Author McDougall thinks he solved a portion of the mystery years after Kraft's conviction and their years in civil court. In his article published in Beach Magazine, McDougall recounted his interviews with Bob Jackson, who allegedly confessed to murdering two hitchhikers with Kraft one in Wyoming and Colorado, then joining Kraft in several California murders in 1977. Nicknamed Twiggy by Kraft, Jackson assumed the match, matching notation on Kraft's cryptic list referred to the one of their joint homicides. 
More chilling yet, he told McDougal that the list included only Kraft's more memorable slings, while the total body count could be closer to 100. McDougal reported Jackson's allegations to the Orange County Sheriff's Department and furnished tape recordings of the interviews. Detectives quizzed Jackson and finally persuaded him to enter a mental hospital, but no murder charges were filed. Authorities in California, Colorado, and Wyoming are unable to confirm the slayings of two nameless victim drifters almost 30 years ago. Randy Kraft, meanwhile, filled his time. I'm sorry. Meanwhile, Randy Kraft filled his time playing bridge on death row. His regular partners included condemned serial killers Lawrence Pliers Bittaker, Sunset Strip Slayer Douglas Clark, and Freeway Killer William, William Bonin. Together, the foursome stood convicted of 41-plus murders. If police speculation is accurate, the true tally is closer to 100-plus dead, with Kraft responsible for two-thirds of the total. Bonin left the game shorthanded with his execution on February 23, 1996, the others live on. Randy Kraft's death sentence was upheld by the Supreme Court on August 11th of 2000. Uh, he still sits on death row. And the reason I wanted to do this one alone, just to, uh, you know, tell you the full story of this and, and to show you that it does affect people sometimes close to you. Um, my cousin uh, reached out to me. Uh, the very last victim, Terry Gambrel, was her uncle. And it was her mother's brother, and she had another uncle that was his twin brother. Um, Terry was a Marine from here in Indiana. Um, he was out there on that base. Uh, he actually left that summer, I think it was. I, I remember my mom telling me that he uh, went out there and she saw him not long before he left. And he went out there. He's about six foot one, 200 pounds. He's a pretty big guy. Um, and this, he ran into this guy hitchhiking apparently. And that guy, uh, drugged him through alcohol and then it uh, ended up murdering him. And before he could torture him or do anything else to him, uh, he got pulled over by the cops and the cops found him. But by then he was already deceased. So she asked me to, tell the story of this and and i want to thank her uh thanks jennifer for for bringing this back to light because i i remember a little bit of this story from when i was little uh obviously i didn't know any of those details i didn't look into it and i just remember our parents telling us that your uncle had been murdered by a serial killer or a killer out there i didn't know it was this one i didn't know anything about the crimes um so it was kind of interesting to look all this stuff up and, you know, I'm, I know it's, it's been a long time and, and I'm sure those memories are still somewhat fresh in your guys' minds. Uh, they did give me a bunch of stuff, which I went through, but I'm not going to read here on air, uh, the exact details. However, I just wanted to, uh, I just wanted to kind of tell people how with every one of these crimes we talk about, there are families involved and those families, you know, are changed forever and they continue to hurt and the healing that they, they need, uh, takes a lot of time, but they never get over this kind of stuff. And it's, you know, she gave me like pictures and she's got all the letters, 
from the military. She's got a telegram here from Western Union informing her of her son's death, um, which seems very impersonal. I don't know for sure if they came to her house, but this just seems really impersonal. And then the total bullshit that she had to go through, because I've, I've went through similar stuff when my, my wife passed away in a car wreck and you have to like, while you're grieving and all this stuff's going on in your head, you have to deal with hospitals and insur insurance companies and, you know, uh, funeral homes. And it, and it gets pitiful how your mind is like trying to grieve but you're trying to stay sane enough to go through all this stuff. And she's got telephone records and all kinds of stuff she had to deal, deal with for the military and for insurance and banks. And they were giving her, you know, like she had to send in stuff to, to get his final like paychecks and stuff from his bank, you know, which was like a couple hundred bucks. You know, she had to go through all kinds of hell just to get that kind of stuff. And I'm sure that opened up her wounds each time she had to look at something like that in the mail for years. Um, and just the care that she, like people all over, like sent her articles and newspaper clippings of this and the trial and, and, uh, her hearing about the trial and being informed by the lawyers and, and, you know, it's just, it, not only her, but all these other victims, their parents, had to go through the same stuff. And I think it's just, we, when we tell these stories, uh, about true crime, we get into the, the gruesome part of it sometimes and the death part of it, but we don't get into the heart of it sometimes. And knowing that those victims had families and friends and, and, you know, Luke, they called him Luke. His name was Terry, but they called him Luke. Luke had a, a fiance and he had a mother and he had a brother and he had a sister and he, he had all kinds of people around him, nieces and nephews. And I mean, it was just, it affects people. Like when these six sadistic pieces of crap do this to other humans, it affects everybody around them and it, and it ripples and it's not just affecting the person you're hurting. It's affecting everybody around you. And I don't understand how this guy can go from this easy conservative background to this sadistic, horrible killer that quickly. You know, I don't know what was going on in his mind. I don't know what caused it. And quite frankly, I don't care what caused it. I think it's bullshit that he got to pull the ju judicial system along and drag that along. I think that's a bunch of shit. I hate that our judicial system allows that to happen for years upon years upon years. And then even after he was convicted, trying to do these frivolous lawsuits, and he's just, he's sitting on death row living the good life. You know, I mean, I, I think people saying you're taking away his freedom is the right punishment. I don't think the guy cared that much about his life anyway. I don't think he cared about anybody else's life. I think some of the stuff he's doing now is probably, you know, he's being taken care of and he probably gets to do what he wants. And obviously he's playing cards and having a good time and filing lawsuits and bullshit. You know, he still never admitted 
He's never admitted anything, even though there's a mountain of evidence. And probably if you went back and you did DNA evidence on all that shit, he's directly tied to it. I think the guy's a piece of shit. I ain't going to lie to you. I haven't cussed much on this episode, but I'm going to right now. The guy's a piece of shit. He took away family members and, and, you know, I don't care who they are, what they were, what they people think they deserve. You know, I mean, I know some of these guys were hitchhiking. I know some of these guys were at gay clubs and, and they should have never been around him. But I mean, you never know who's going to be around you, especially at that time. You know, somebody share a beer with you. I mean, it's back then it probably wasn't that big of a deal. You know, I mean, people, people probably should have been more wary, I guess, of taking drinks or anything from somebody, but like, for a little bitty piece of shit like that to to hurt somebody like Luke who was six one and two hundred pounds, they definitely had to get the drop on him somehow. And uh, I mean, it looks like it's through drugs and alcohol. So I guess my message is, you know, just like today when we have people going out and harming others for a message or because they're depressed or whatever, the ripple effect you have on people's lives. You know, that that news story is going to die down. People are going to forget about certain things. But for those people, it's going to hurt them forever. And I don't think that's what they think about, you know. So so to me, it's like I don't see why we waste time on people like that. I'm not usually for the death penalty, but for cases like this, I am. I think the dude should have died a long time ago. I don't think he deserves to be walking on earth. And, you know, if you're out there... Uh, listening Randy Craft you know if you're listening I think it would be to your best benefit before you die to admit that you did this and to apologize to the families Uh, if not I hope you rot in hell so there you go so that's my episode and it was uh, a hard one to do and I did a different format by me just reading this as a true crime, singular true crime episode. Um, I will post a few documents on here uh, just to show you like the list on our social media and stuff, show you what he looked like, what some of his victims looked like. I'm not going to show you crime scene photos or anything, but you know, I'm going to show you Terry and uh, I will show you a few of the uh, things that, you know, the immense amount of things that people got that way you can, you can see not people that, that his mom and sister got that you can see, you know, how this affects people because it definitely affects people's lives. Um, so I really, the only message I have is, you know, treat others with kindness. I know some of you guys might have thoughts in your head of, of anger and frustration or deviancies that go beyond the norm, but treat others with respect and just don't hurt people, you know, just don't hurt people physically, mentally or whatever. And I I know I've probably, you know, mentally hurt people or bullied people in the past. I, I truly ask for forgiveness because I don't mind, you know, I don't mind being the bigger person and saying, I'm sorry, because I probably have done a lot of stupid stuff in the past. I know I have. Um, and I am sorry, but, you know, try not to hurt people. Try to be kind, try to be kind to others, love others. That's, you know, whether you're religious or not, you know, loving others is the total goal of this life, you know, just loving others. 
So that that's our episode on Randy Craft, the scorecard killer. Uh, thanks for Jennifer, my cousin, for bringing me this episode. And we will see you next in a couple weeks, actually. Uh, hopefully we'll all be back together and doing an episode. So that's the Horror You Know podcast. I'm Darren. <laughs>